Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure to welcome you back to the Middle East Center Friday Seminar. And it is a particular pleasure to be welcoming back to the Middle East Center one of our own sons, someone who came to us as a student in the MPhil, and we see very much as a hometown boy who made good, <laughs> Seth Ancestia. Seth came to Oxford after having been an undergraduate and a truly fine undergraduate institution, Columbia College. And on the strength of recommendations of his then professor of Middle Eastern history, Rashid Halidi, he was told the one place one should go if one really wanted to embark on the serious study of the Middle East was St. Anthony's College, Oxford. Seth applied, of course, became our star student, rose right to the top of his class, embarrassingly good marks. Um, I won't embarrass you further, Seth, but on the back of that, of course, was whisked right back by his former University of Columbia for his doctoral study, once again with Rashid Hamadi, of course, himself part of the Sanapnis family. Rashid is one of our, our DPhil graduates and a brilliant, brilliant scholar of the Middle East and of the history of Palestine in particular. And the thing about Seth that's been both striking, even since he was a master's student, is that whatever he wrote down made you sort of jolt to attention and you were just terribly struck with interest in what he had been writing. This is not a common experience. I can tell you, as someone who's marked many a tutorial essay, that the ones that make you jolt upright and go, gosh, what have we here, are really a pleasure to read. And he did it time and time again. He did it as a graduate student when he would mark anniversaries of the Arab-Israeli conflict by firing off an op-ed to the New York Times. On that occasion, it was an agent who picked up the telephone and said, could you make a book out of that? Well, Seth went on, wrote the doctorate in that area that he truly has made his own, which is to talk to the people who've been at the cold face of making the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict from the American perspective in particular, with his sympathy for the position of the Palestinians, his engagement with Israeli politicians, and his familiarity with the Americans who were in the driver's seat. He's been able to weave a complex story of a very complex history that puts into question the whole notion of an honest broker. His book is now out. It is called Preventing Palestine. Seth has come to us from not too far away. Having finished his doctorate, he was immediately offered a job at UCL in London. So we're thrilled to have you so close. Seth holds the Farsi Polonsky Lecture of Jewish-Muslim Relations at University College London. Excellent position for you to hold. And like you, I just want to hear what he has to say. So I'm going to bring this introduction to a close and ask you all to join me in extending the warmest and happiest welcome to our former student. Thank you, Eugene, for that really warm introduction, and to the Middle East Center, and to Kaya for hosting me this afternoon, to all of you for joining. If it feels a bit like a homecoming, that's because St. Anthony's, uh, as Eugene suggested, was really the place that a lot of this project got started, and that had a very formative influence on me and my interest in um, Middle East history and politics. And the community around here in particular was really formative in developing my own thinking about the region and about a whole host of uh, questions around it. So for me to be back here is really uh, wonderful. And also to be here with Eugene and Avi, uh, Michael, Walter, Philip, so many others. I should say that the earliest drafts of the chapters that made it into this book were written as my MPhil thesis in the Gulbenkian room uh, or in the old MEC library next door where the Middle East seminars used to take place. So it's really a delight for me to be able to return and to launch this book with all of you here this afternoon. 
And the timing of the seminar is also fortuitous, because last month we marked the 40th anniversary of the Camp David Accords between Egypt and Israel, as well as the 25th anniversary of the Oslo Accords, the two events that frame this book. So I look forward to your reactions and your questions during the Q&A. I want to begin with a map of Israel, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip, which was produced by the U.S. State Department in 2015. Some of you may have uh, seen this. It was published in the New Yorker magazine a few months ago in an article by Adam Entus. And the map captures the extent of the expansion of Jewish settlements and outposts and the accompanying fragmentation that has prevented a contiguous Palestinian state as part of a broader two-state solution to end the conflict. The white sections on this map represent areas A and B, which were designated under partial and full Palestinian control as part of the Oslo Accords. And the green area in the West Bank, area C, is the site of Jewish settlements. In 2015, according to B'Tselem, the leading Israeli information center for human rights, there was an estimated 588,000 Jewish settlers in the West Bank. This figure is derived from two sources, according to the data provided by Israel's Central Bureau of Statistics. At the end of 2015, about 383,000 people were living in settlements of the West Bank, excluding East Jerusalem. And according to data provided by the Jerusalem Institute for Israel Studies, the population in the Israeli neighborhoods of East Jerusalem reached about 205,220 people at the same time. That number has gone up significantly in the last three years. Now this is the same area where Palestinians have sought to create a viable independent state of their own alongside the Gaza Strip, totaling 22% of historic Palestine. And if we are to listen to the warnings of Jerusalem's former deputy mayor and an expert on this topic, Aaron Ben Venisti, the settlements are irreversible. Now, even if we might argue that they can be dismantled, it is clear that the possibility of an independent and viable Palestinian state is a very difficult prospect in 2018, far more than it might have been in the 1990s, or even when it was first envisioned. In fact, across the political spectrum in Israel today, many politicians have abandoned altogether the call for a two-state solution to end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In December, Israel's education minister and the leader of the right-wing Jewish Home Party, or Habayat HaYehudi, Naftali Bennett, told one interviewer that rather than a separate state for Palestinians, he believes in what he called an economic stability plan. This includes application of Israeli sovereignty in Area C, which constitutes about 60% of the West Bank, and what he called autonomy on steroids for Palestinians in areas A and B. They will govern themselves, Bennett explained, in all aspects barring two elements, and these are his words, overall security responsibility and not being able to allow the return of descendants of Palestinian refugees. When asked whether his vision would provide self-determination for Palestinians, Bennett demurred. It's unrealistic, he said. The stability plan is only partial self-determination, but in the real world, you have to make compromises. Bennett's ideas seem to have very strong support in the White House of the current US President, Donald J. Trump. His lead advisor on the conflict, and also his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, 
has been supporting a focus on economic peace rather than political rights for Palestinians as part of the so-called deal of the century. After a meeting with Bennett, Trump's special representative for international negotiations, Jason Greenblatt, tweeted about what he said was the importance of working to improve the economic life of Palestinians. So you see the same theme of economic peace. Trump himself, as some of you may remember, in his first White House meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, dispensed with decades of official US and EU policy and conceded that he was no longer wedded to the idea of a separate Palestinian state. In that joint press conference in February of 2017, he was asked if he was ready to give up on the notion of a two-state solution. Would he be willing to hear different ideas from Israel's prime minister, like annexation of part of the West Bank and unrestricted settlement construction? And Trump, in his inimitable fashion, responded as follows. So I'm looking at two state, I'm looking at one state, and I like the one that both parties like. I'm very happy with the one that both parties like. I can live with either one. I haven't quite mastered the Queen's New York voice, but I'll try. How did we get here? How can it be that the possibility of a Palestinian state, which has been at the heart of Palestinian demands for self-determination since the Palestine Liberation Organization, or the PLO, accepted the premise of territorial division, and relevant UN resolutions in 1988, with some of those ideas even prior, how is it that it seems to have been totally removed from the diplomatic equation? More broadly, what explains the persistence of Palestinian statelessness over 70 years since Israel's creation and the Palestinian dispossession, or the Nakba, of 1948? Why is it that 25 years since the Oslo Accords, which were premised on mutual recognition and the possibility of statehood, that Palestine is farther than ever from emerging as a recognized, independent, and sovereign state. My book, Preventing Palestine, looks at how exactly this happened, explaining why we got here. The story does not begin with Bennett, or with Netanyahu, or even, much to his chagrin, with Donald Trump. Rather, as I argue, we must revisit the election of Jimmy Carter, the man at the center of this photograph, and his efforts to broker a comprehensive peace in the Middle East after taking office in January of 1977. And instead of resolving the Palestinian question, as was intended by US officials at the time, the Carter administration's highly celebrated Camp David Accords served to defer a reckoning with Palestinian demands. The Accords secured a peace treaty between Israel and Egypt, the first Arab state to confer recognition on Israel, and it did it in return for the Sinai Peninsula, a large expanse of territory that had been captured by Israel in the 1967 war. Yet the other occupied territories of the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, East Jerusalem, along with the Golan Heights, have remained in Israel's possession and control ever since. And alongside the expansion of Jewish settlements in these areas for over five decades, Israel has successfully prevented the emergence of a sovereign Palestinian political entity. Without an independent state, Palestinians continue to live as non-citizens under Israeli occupation, deprived of basic rights like the freedom of movement. They are stateless subjects under Israeli military control, suspended between limited autonomy within urban enclaves of self-rule, those white areas that you saw, and the continuing encroachment of Israeli settlements. 
The result did not appear out of the blue, nor was it inevitable. Rather, a non-statist outcome emerged directly from diplomatic negotiations meant to resolve their political fate beginning in the late 1970s. My story of how this happened is not about Israel alone. It involves Egypt and the United States and the actions of the PLO, the representative of Palestinian nationalism itself. As a work of international history, this is also a tale involving Jewish communities in the United States and Europe, Cold War conservatives, the United Kingdom, and the Soviet Union. I argue that we cannot understand the persistence of Palestinian statelessness today and the efforts to curtail political demands even further under Netanyahu and Trump without going back to the earliest international efforts to address Palestinian demands in political terms. And this is what takes us to the election of President Jimmy Carter. <coughs> now Carter, as those of you who were born well before I was, may recall, was a relatively unknown former governor from Georgia when he ran for office in 1976. A devout Southern Baptist, a Navy veteran, a successful agriculturalist, he was particularly unfamiliar to American Jews in the Northeast who were concerned about Israel's security in the wake of the 1973 war. Many were skeptical of Carter's southern roots, and they were wary of supporting an untested politician with no experience in the Middle East. And this hostility ran very deep. One Jewish campaign advisor recalled the views of his co-religionists. You mean you are supporting that guy? I thought he was anti-Semitic. To counter these anxieties, Carter put a large blue velvet yarmulke on his head and chose a major Orthodox congregation in New Jersey to deliver one of his most important campaign speeches in 1976. As an American, Carter told the overflow audience of more than 2,000 congregants, I have admired the state of Israel and how she, like the United States, opened her doors to the homeless and the oppressed. Arguing for a permanent peace deal in the Middle East, Carter told his audience that peace must be based on the absolute assurance of Israel's survival and security. The survival of Israel is not just a political issue, it is a moral imperative. Conspicuously absent from Carter's synagogue address was a direct discussion of the Palestinians in political terms. Now this omission was in line with dominant US policy at the time, as well as strong domestic American Jewish opposition to the PLO in the United States, and the unwelcome claims of self-determination that the organization was making globally in the 1970s. The specter of armed Palestinian resistance from plane hijackings to armed attacks in Israel had not dissipated despite the PLO's growing commitment to diplomacy. Now Carter's early attitudes toward the Palestinians was also based in part on a lack of knowledge, and he himself declared so in his memoirs. I had no strong feelings about the Arab countries. I had never visited one and knew no Arab leaders. Yet Carter took issue with Palestinian political disenfranchisement, growing out of his domestic orientation toward greater civil rights and equality. Now this was a function of his childhood in the segregated South, where racial inequality was a direct feature of daily life. And over the course of his first few months in office, the evolution of his thinking about the meaning of Palestinian self-determination led to the floating of very specific ideas to address their political plight. 
alongside his national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, and his secretary of state, Cyrus Vance, Carter worked to develop a striking vision of a possible comprehensive settlement in the Middle East that included, at its heart, an entity akin to a Palestinian state. Now, the details of this highly classified plan, which were outlined in February of 1977, covered Israel's relations with Egypt, Syria, and the Palestinians, and it examined the fate of Jerusalem while providing maps of possible permanent borders. Egypt was viewed as a key component in the settlement, but a separate peace between Egypt and Israel, as this memo explained, was not in the cards. Carter's advisors envisioned a Palestinian homeland that would be linked to Jordan in a loose confederation, with an elected administration supervising the police, the courts, a capital, flags, taxation, and passports. The Palestinians would be allowed internal security forces without heavy military equipment crossing the Jordan River. And Jordan would be responsible for foreign policy and for defense, and it could intervene for internal security matters. <coughs> Any arrangement would rely on political and economic relationships between the Palestinian entity and Jordan, with Palestinian representatives participating in negotiations and securing approval by local referendum. Arguably, this was the first detailed American outline of a grand regional settlement to resolve Israel's conflict with the Palestinians, which placed territorial division at its core an early iteration of what we might eventually come to understand as the idea of a two-state solution. Now, although the Palestinian component was limited to a homeland linked with Jordan rather than an independent state, it contained the seeds of plausible sovereignty to address Palestinian aspirations for self-determination. And in dealing with the most contentious issues of the conflict, including refugees and the right of return, as well as the status of Jerusalem and the demarcation of a permanent border, this February 1977 plan was the first comprehensive U.S. idea for resolving unanswered questions of what to do with this territory conquered in the 1967 war. And I would recommend on this particular question or topic of what was the Israeli decision-making process like in the aftermath of 1967, the work of Abi Raz, a colleague and a friend here at Oxford, whose book, The Bride and the Dowry, explains in detail how Eshkol's decision not to decide on the fate of those territories in the aftermath of 1967 leads to this condition of extending Israeli <coughs> sovereignty without annexation. And in many ways, Carter's effort was trying to break this pattern from 1967. Now, we must remember that the conception of a Palestinian entity that's envisioned in the late 1970s is very different from a contemporary notion of statehood. So what we think about as a state or statehood or sovereignty today is not what is being imagined in the 1970s. Now, why is this so? Why is the Palestinian state not endorsed in the 70s? Part of the reason has to do with a gradual evolution within Palestinian nationalism itself. There had been a split between the PLO, which is created by the Arab League in 1964 as a means to diffuse nationalist agitation among Palestinians, and the Fatah movement, an independent liberation organization whose founders included this man, Yasser Arafat, rendered here in a poster of the Palestinian artist Hosni Radwan. In 1965, Fatah began launching guerrilla attacks into Israel from Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon to liberate Palestine and keep the national struggle alive. Fatah soon joined the PLO and became the dominant force of the umbrella organization, with Arafat taking over the leadership in 1969. 
but there were several constituent factions within the organization, many of which utilized armed violence, and some engaged in highly visible global attacks, like plane hijackings, to advance their struggle. And it was the 1973 Arab-Israeli War which launched a new phase of internal deliberations within the PLO, orienting the organization towards partition and the acknowledgement of Israel's presence. This is explained in great detail by scholars like Mohammed Musleh and Yazid Sayed, the great experts on Palestinian nationalism, that this internal phase and deliberation within the PLO leads towards this idea of partition and an acknowledgement of Israel's presence. And in the aftermath of that 1973 war, the PLO gradually shifts towards diplomacy, which required political compromise and the eventual embrace of a state on far less than the territory of historic Palestine. This was not a simple position to take, nor did it elicit uniform support, with early stirrings for a political solution leading to a violent backlash by more extreme factions. In June of 1974, the Palestine National Council, which is considered the PLO's parliament in exile, passed a 10-point program that denoted a more targeted struggle for what it said was every part of Palestinian land that is liberated. And this E addendum that is liberated implied an acceptance of a political solution on a limited piece of territory. And by the late 1970s, advocates for a separate state on a part of Palestinian territory had gained ground within the PLO and the national movement's political demands were increasingly visible on a global stage. The United Nations General Assembly granted the PLO observer status in 1974, and Arafat speaks in the chamber, a signal of increasing acceptance as a political interlocutor. It's important also to remember that the, the way in which the PLO and PLO representatives began to talk about the idea of limited statehood on a, a partial piece of historic Palestine, or what became the idea of a two-state solution, was a radical leftist idea in the 1970s. This was not something embraced or common by any means. The US government, however, continued to officially oppose any diplomatic engagement with the PLO, and it was codified by a 1975 ban on a discussion with the organization that had been put in motion by the former US Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger. And this ban was only to be reversed when the PLO fully accepted UN Security Council Resolutions 242 and 338, which were passed in the aftermath of the 67 and 1973 wars, enshrining the principle of land for peace. The PLO was reluctant to embrace these resolutions because they were very concerned that the language of these resolutions did not actually ensure the possibility of sovereign statehood. If we look closely at the language of the resolutions, in particular at 242 and the English rendering of the resolution, the article the is absent from this resolution, so it's not clear which territories will actually be exchanged for peace. And in addition to that, there is no actual direct mention of Palestinian sovereignty. And given this, the PLO is very reluctant to embrace these resolutions. Carter assures the Palestinians that he would take their demands seriously, both in private conversations and secret back channels that were mediated by Secretary Vance in, in more public settings. But he faced very early resistance from the first Israeli prime minister with whom he met, here a very young Yitzhak Rabin. In meetings between these two leaders, Carter firmly articulated the American position on territory and the Palestinian question. As Carter said to Rabin, your settlements in the occupied territories are illegal. Your control over territory in the occupied regions will have to be modified substantially. 
As for the PLO, Carter invoked global comparisons to soften Rabin's opposition to engagement. And this is what Carter says. We, of course, deplore terrorism, but even we sometimes have had to swallow our pride. We talk to the North Koreans, and the French talk to the FLN. We don't know of any Palestinian leaders other than the PLO. He called for greater Israeli flexibility on moving toward negotiations with Palestinian representation, which Rabin opposed. In his memoir, Rabin recalls this meeting with disdain, frustrated by Carter's insistence on frank talk and these clear objectives, and he grew increasingly concerned about the effect of Carter's new style and what it would mean for the region. As Rabin wrote, if he publicized his views on the Middle East, he would bring comfort to the Arabs and weaken Israel's negotiating position. Now, Carter's approach reflected a changing international climate, as I said, in the late 1970s, one that was far more sympathetic to Palestinian demands, especially here in Europe. And this fit more squarely with Carter's focus on human rights and his desire for a new language to think about the place of Palestinian self-determination. And his desire to overturn convention led to a decisive statement 10 days after this meeting with Rabin. At a town hall in a meeting in Clinton, Massachusetts, he responded to a question on the Middle East by saying that there has to be, quote, a homeland provided for the Palestinian refugees who have suffered for many, many years. Now, Carter's choice of the word homeland elicited a great deal of public criticism from Israeli and American Jewish leaders. This is the first US president to use the term homeland when talking about the Palestinians. As Carter's liaison to the American Jewish community explained, the Jewish community here is in almost morbid fear of a separate politically independent Palestinian entity on the West Bank of the Jordan River. The fear and disgust of the PLO reaches almost Nazi-hating quality of emotion. This disgust is what animated fierce domestic criticism to the town hall, and it spread to Cold War conservatives, fueling a very significant shift in American political history uh, with the move of neoconservatives, or liberal hawks, to the Republican Party and the White House of Ronald Reagan. So this homeland remark is in many ways part of that transformation. Now, unlike the domestic opposition that Carter faced, his statement evoked sympathy and interest from Arab leaders, in particular from Egypt. The Egyptian government had been working to recover the lost territory from the 1967 war, and it is this man here on the left, Anwar al-Sadat, who had succeeded the leading pan-Arab advocate, Gamal Abdel Nasser, in 1970, who spearheads this effort at shifting Egyptian policy. Now, Sadat was born to a poor Nubian family in the Egyptian Nile Delta, one of 13 siblings, later graduating from the Royal Military Academy in Cairo. In the context of the Cold War, Sadat is firmly intent on moving Egypt from the Soviet to the American sphere of influence. And he makes great efforts to reach out to the United States from the time he comes into office in 1970, ordering Soviet troops out of Egypt, and working with Kissinger on disengagement agreements after the 1973 war. As for the Palestinians, Sadat believed that they should have a state in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip connected by a corridor running through Israel. And despite this vocal advocacy on behalf of the Palestinians, Sadat ends up far more concerned with domestic Egyptian growth and the financial gains from an alliance with the United States and he would find an unexpected partner in his increasingly bilateral effort after a sea change in Israeli politics in the spring of 1977. 
That year, in a startling development, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin announced his resignation from office on April 8th. This decision was a consequence of a somewhat minor bank account scandal involving his wife while he was an ambassador in the United States. She had illegally opened up a U.S. bank account and hadn't reported it. And in a political earthquake, this man on the right, Menachem Begin, and his Likud party emerged 11 seats ahead of the Labour Party's forerunner, the alignment in the elections of May 1977. And Begin emerges as the first Likud prime minister of Israel, breaking nearly 30 years of labor dominance over the country's politics. During the lead up to this May election, Begin stresses the impossibility of a Palestinian state or any form of national self-determination for what he calls the Arab residents of Judea and Samaria. He does not call it the West Bank, he uses the biblical terms. In his memoir, President Carter recalled watching an interview when Begin was running for office in which the candidate stated that the entire West Bank had been liberated during the Six-Day War and that a Jewish majority and an Arab minority would be established there. At the time, Carter exclaimed, I could not believe what I was hearing. But Begin's views were not at all surprising to anyone who had been paying attention to his very long career in politics. Now here we have Begin pressing the flesh, as it were, sort of like at the Iowa State Fair, but in the West Bank, in a settlement as uh, he was running for re-election. Behind him is Ariel Sharon, who's the mastermind, as we'll see in a moment, of the settlement project. Begin is a leader of the revisionist faction of the Zionist movement, a right-wing territorial maximalist counterweight to labor Zionism. And he is a disciple of its founder, Ze'ev Jabotinsky. His early years have been marked by the upheaval of war in Europe, the tragedy of losing his parents and his brother in the Holocaust, and after arriving in Palestine and commanding the underground Irgun militia, Begin headed the opposition in the Israeli Knesset as the head of the Khairut and then the Likud party, which was the position from which he very passionately articulated these views on a host of very fractious issues. He saw the West Bank as central to Israeli identity. When the territories were first conquered in 1967, in that same moment that Avi Raz describes in Eshkol's discussions about what to do with the fate of these territories, Begin was deeply opposed to granting Arab inhabitants political rights or any form of territorial control that could lead to Palestinian statehood. In his first speech, the Israeli Knesset as prime minister in June of 1977, Begin declared, quote, the government will plan and establish and encourage settlements, both rural and urban, on the land of the homeland. Uh, among Palestinian leaders who are watching this, uh, particularly from Beirut, his uh, initial moves merely substantiated their deep antipathy. The rise was especially jarring in Washington, where the settlement issue, as we know, had already been a point of contention for Carter. But he is invited to the White House to meet with Carter soon after taking office, because the US was intent on the pursuit of a comprehensive peace and meeting with Begin seemed a necessary step to move forward. Now, declassified Israeli records that I found at the Israel State Archives reveal that Begin privately sketched his peace principles for Carter during this initial meeting in July. He indicated a clear willingness to withdraw substantially in the Sinai as part of a peace deal with Egypt, and he even seemed prepared to withdraw from the Golan Heights in the context of a peace deal with Syria but the West Bank and Gaza were never part of his negotiations. Concerning Judea, Samaria, and the Gaza Strip, Begin said, our position is that we shall not place them under any foreign ruler sovereignty on the basis of two factors. One, our people's right to the land. It is our land as of right. Two, our national security, which concerns the defensive capability of the state 
and the lives of our civilian population. Bacon had a very clear idea of his ceiling on withdrawal. At no time during the subsequent discussions with Carter or with Sadat does he ever relent on this basic stated principle of no foreign sovereignty for the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and Jerusalem. And rather than entertain collective self-determination for Palestinians, he views Arabs as a minority in need of protection, not a national collective. He argues that Palestinians or Arab residents of Judea and Samaria should be provided with economic opportunities, with housing, but no political rights. And this emerging notion of autonomy was clearly at odds with Carter's view of the idea of a homeland for Palestinians. Yet Begin introduces his autonomy plan to European, Israeli, and even Egyptian leaders as an innovative idea that would address Palestinian concerns once and for all. And he does it here in the UK under the watchful eye of Jim Callahan, the prime minister, who's actually quite sympathetic to this idea. And this is uh, something that I think is fundamentally misunderstood about British policy is that the Callahan government actually entertained Begin's notion of autonomy. Carter spends several months mediating between Begin's vision and Sadat's more expansive hopes. And in the process, the Egyptian president grows impatient with the Israeli position, hoping to proceed with a comprehensive vision outlined by the United States. And in an unexpected speech to the People's Assembly in Cairo on November 9, 1977, Sadat vows in emotional terms to go to the Knesset itself in order to secure Israeli withdrawal from the territories and to legitimate the rights for the Palestinians. Now this decision reflected a consistent approach that Sadat had taken since the early 1970s. If he moves Egypt away from the Soviet orbit towards the American sphere of influence, he will achieve Western backing for internal reforms and the modernization of Egypt's economy. And in the breathless coverage, this is the two of them meeting uh, during well, one of their trips, one of Sadat's trips to Israel. Egypt's leader is praised for boldness on the one hand, and he's accused at the same time of betraying the Arab world's stance toward Israel on the other. The trip generated a tremendous amount of internal dissent in Egypt, leading to the resignation of Foreign Minister Ismail Fahmi and his deputy, Mohammed Riyadh. The visit is met by wide disapproval across the Arab world, with especially strident opposition emerging from Syria. And the PLO uh, condemns Sadat's decisions. Officials believe it would only strengthen Begin's hand, a useless step, they explained, which will give the Israelis prestige and recognition. Beyond the symbolism, critics wondered what exactly would Sadat be able to secure from Begin. The sheer visual power of an Arab leader landing at Ben Gurion Airport, greeted by all of these Israeli officials, including many of Sadat's military rivals from 1973, captures global attention and breaks decades of an Israeli fear about Arab intentions. Um, and in a remarkable speech delivered in Arabic in front of the Knesset, Sadat talks about a durable and just peace without mentioning the PLO by name. He says there can be no peace without the Palestinians. But alongside this public gesture towards a comprehensive peace, the trip does not yield any substantive indication of how he might achieve this. And Sadat concedes as much privately very soon after he returns to Cairo. He tells the US ambassador to Egypt that he sensed the concept of an independent Palestinian state did not appeal to Begin or to Defense Minister Azar Weizmann. Instead, Sadat proposes that the Gaza Strip become the main weight of a Palestinian state. Subsequently, explaining what self-determination might mean, he says it would merely be a plebiscite on the question of federation or confederation with Jordan. 
And upon further reflection, he says that West Bankers should also be given the option of independence. So he begins to water down his views about the possibility of what Palestinians might actually achieve. And this gradual acquiescence to Begin's firm agenda continues following this trip to Jerusalem and is a telling indication of his overall approach. The Egyptian foreign minister, Ismail Fahmi, who, who had resigned in protest, later remarked that it was a shock to the Egyptian people, the Arab world, and the Palestinians. In Fahmi's view, the trip certainly destroyed Egypt's crucial role in helping the Palestinian people to regain their own land and statehood. Rather than statehood, Israel's prime minister promises local authority for elected Arab officials in areas like commerce, education, health, transport, but Israel would maintain control of security over the territory, and the residents of Israel, or within Israel, would be, as Begin explained, entitled to acquire land and settle in the area of Judea, Samaria, and the Gaza district as well. And this is the basis for the notion of extending Israeli sovereignty beyond the Green Line. In a direct challenge to the PLO's political vision and the claim of Palestinian nationalists, Begin's autonomy plan is predicated on Israel retaining the territories acquired in 67, rather than returning them in the context of negotiations. And the culmination of this strategy is the September 1978 Camp David Accords, which we tend not to think about in reference to Palestinian statelessness. Even while agreeing to meet with Sadat under Carter's mediation at the presidential retreat, Begin never veers from his stated position on the inviolability of the West Bank Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. While the US preparatory memos for the summit clearly established the desire for Israeli territorial withdrawal from the territories, a settlement moratorium, adjudication of the Palestinian question, Israel is very clear about the basis of its participation in the Camp David talks. Just before leaving for the US, Begin reiterates his preconditions on Israeli radio, which include no withdrawal to the 1967 borders, and continued Israeli military control of the West Bank and Gaza under any interim agreement. And his vision remains aimed at Egypt alone. Although Sadat continued to advocate for resolving the Palestinian issue at the summit, Begin and his advisors, as I explained in the book, successfully pushed to dislodge this issue from any final agreement as declassified notes and documents of the Camp David summit now reveal. In his assessment of the summit, William Quant, who is a member of the U.S. negotiating team and the leading U.S. expert on the summit, explained that in signing these accords, Israel secured retention of the West Bank. For Begin, Quant writes, Sinai had been sacrificed, but Eretz Israel had been won. And for Israel, the first formal recognition from an Arab state is a milestone achievement. It neutralizes any military threat from the Southwest, and because it's not dependent on a broader linkage with progress on other fronts, it also provides the Begin government with the opportunity to consolidate its territorial holdings on the remaining areas conquered in 1967. And we'll see in a minute what this looks like on a map. But the first and the less well-known of the two Camp David agreements was known as a framework for peace in the Middle East, and that built directly on Begin's autonomy plan, focusing on the West Bank and Gaza Strip. It contained a provision for negotiations to establish an autonomous self-governing authority without any clarity of what sort of entity might emerge or the extent of Israeli territorial withdrawal. Explicitly, the accords do not include any reference to self-determination, which is the result of a successful effort that Begin and his advisors make to secure the exclusion of the term. 
So exactly what the Accords would mean and how exactly a full autonomy might be achieved is uh, not ever quite explained. Now, critics of the Camp David summit gradually recognize this dangerous outcome, and they speak out forcefully against Sadat's behavior toward the Palestinians. His own advisors dissent. His foreign minister, Mohammed Kamel, boycotts the signing ceremony and resigns from office. The PLO announces its total rejection of the accords soon after they are signed, and leaders from the territories declare that the idea of autonomy is an open plot against Palestinian rights, especially self-determination. PLO chairman Yasser Arafat warns that any supporters of Sadat would pay a high price, describing this autonomy idea as no more than managing the sewers. And this is a poster that's published a bit later, also from the Palestine Poster Archive, of uh, some of the kinds of reactions within the PLO towards the Camp David Accords. And as I explain in detail in the book, the efforts to finalize the peace treaty are then accompanied by a burst of settlement building activity in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip, which is now firmly promoted by the Likud government of Begin and his chief settlement czar, Ariel Sharon. Now, these are two maps we had made for the book, and this gives you a pretty clear indication of what's happening on the ground as I'm trying to describe the political realities that are taking place uh, behind the scenes. Here on the left, this is a map of the West Bank and Gaza in 1977. This is on the eve or before the Camp David Accord, so right as Begin comes to office. You have a total of 42 settlements with anywhere between 2,600 and 5,300 settlers. The numbers are a bit tricky on, on this score, but that's the, the range. And you can see there's pretty isolated in the Gaza Strip, and then the West Bank uh, settlements are clustered uh, mostly around Kfar Etzion, a very important area with a Jewish presence before 1948, and as well in Malay Adumim, uh, east of Jerusalem. These dots are not showing you the density, they're just showing you the location of the settlements. Take a look at what this map looks like in 1992. This is before the Oslo Accords. Okay, this is uh, 100 and I think it says, yeah, 39 settlements with over 105,000 settlers. You can see in Gaza the expansion that takes place here in the southwest, but even more significantly is to look at the way in which these settlements are then mapped out on the West Bank itself. The idea here is that you create settlements that will break up the possibility of contiguous Palestinian territory. This is the result of the ideas that Sharon promotes when he is the agricultural minister, but also the ideas that are essentially given legal affirmation under the shifting legal regime in the Israeli government in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And you can see they're built in the West Bank highlands around Jenin, Nablus, Tulkaram, and they're essentially intended to break up the possibility of a sovereign state. And there is a great deal of evidence that after the signing of the Camp David Accords, the Begin government, uh, under the eye of Eliyahu ben Elisaro, becomes the first Israeli ambassador to Egypt, embarks on a massive expansion plan directly tied to the Camp David signing. Carter, who had sacrificed a great deal of political capital by offering limited support for some form of Palestinian self-rule during his tenure, was bitterly disappointed with the failure of his vision for dealing with the Palestinians. During his final meeting with Israel's ambassador to the United States, Ephraim Evron, the outgoing president lamented the state of affairs. <coughs> I don't see how they, Israel, can continue as an occupying power, depriving the Palestinians of basic human rights, and I don't see how they can absorb three million more Arabs into Israel without letting the Jews become a minority in their own country. 
Begin showed courage in giving up the Sinai. He did it to keep the West Bank. I think that much of Carter's frustration actually fuels his post-presidential activism on behalf of the Palestinians and might be something we can return to. The 1980 election of Ronald Reagan solidified many of the trends already unleashed by Camp David. Growing neoconservative influence enables the massive expansion that I've just shown you of the settlements with also a great deal more legal permissiveness towards the Likud's building plan. So Carter had called the settlements illegal. Reagan and the new legal advisors who come in in the 1980s talk about the settlements as merely obstacles to peace. We have very clear evidence that Begin hears this, he understands this, and he also uh, links this with a kind of legitimacy that's given to the settlement project. Furthermore, Israel is cast as a strategic ally of the United States for the first time. This is the beginning of uh, a relationship of a memorandum of understanding between Israel and the United States. Um, and the PLO is cast as a Soviet proxy, paving the way for a deadly intervention in Lebanon, which I just want to briefly touch upon, because this invasion of Lebanon in June of 1982, which comes on the heels of the Camp David Accords, is actually openly endorsed and approved by the U.S. government as news sources now reveal. And this is a page taken from the notebooks of Charlie Hill, who was the lead staff secretary to Alexander Haig, the U.S. Secretary of State, in 1982. This was a meeting between Ariel Sharon and Alexander Haig that definitively shows you the endorsement and the green light that was given by the Americans to the Israelis for invading Lebanon. Here you see Sharon talking about uh, wanting to have some form of an intervention. We appreciate your criticism about the size. Our intention is not a large operation. We will try to be as small and efficient as possible, to which Haig replies, like a lobotomy. Uh, and then you can see here on the bottom, uh, the, the notes of, of Hill, a green light from Haig on limited operation. This is in the uh, Hoover archive at Stanford where Hill's notebooks are deposited. So we now have conclusive evidence that there was a green light offered to the Israelis. And what began largely as a political effort to defeat Palestinian nationalism, that Sharon was sort of thinking about this invasion in reference to an attempt to destroy Palestinian nationalism after the diplomatic efforts of Camp David, this had been waged successfully through the Camp David Accords and the autonomy talks. It moves to this military intervention in the streets of wartime Beirut in the summer of 1982. Here you see an Israeli soldier in West Beirut, and these are clearly people who are being held captive by the Israeli soldiers in the summer of 82. The war of uh, 1982 and the tragic consequences of the alliance between Israel and the Falange leader Bashir Jamal, seen here with his away uh, Kata'ab militiamen in 1982, leads to the death of hundreds of Palestinian civilians in the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps, which I can talk a little bit more about. This is an iconic image of the massacre at Sabra and Shatila. This is a massacre that we now know because of newly available material that was in some ways already predicated on discussions that were happening well before September of 1982. This is a material I can talk a little bit about in July where you have the Israeli officials, uh, the defense minister, General Tamir, others, the Mossad, meeting with Bashir Jamal at the Lebanese forces headquarters. This is in July of 82, a month after the invasion. You can see here, Bashir inquired whether we would object if he introduces bulldozers into the refugee camps in the south in order to remove them. 
so that the refugees will not remain. The Defense Minister Sharon responds, this is not our business. We do not wish to deal with Lebanon's internal affairs. These are the kinds of conversations that are happening well before the massacre even transpires. Here you can see in August of 82, this is another meeting between uh, the Defense Minister uh, Pierre and Bashir Jamal. Here on the right, the Defense Minister, what would you do about refugee camps? Bashir, we are planning a real zoo. The Defense Minister, are you planning on going into West Beirut? Bashir, a problem exists regarding the Murabi Tun. This is a conversation that ends up happening about uh, potential militants, which we know from the evidence was then explained later that it's possible to surmise from contacts with the Falange leaders, Sabra would become a zoo in Shatila, Beirut's parking lot. This is in August of 82. And finally, Bashir adds on the right here, it is possible in this context they will need several dear Yassins. So there's a discussion which links very much the history of the Nakba and the destruction of the Palestinians in 48 with the kinds of actions and behavior that is being countenanced by the Israelis and by the Falange in 82. So we can kind of think about the logic that connects these moments in historical time and links the political and diplomatic efforts to prevent Palestinian sovereignty in Camp David with this military assault on Palestinians in 82. Uh, the invasion uh, also leads to thousands of Lebanese casualties during this brutal siege of uh, Beirut, scores of US Marine casualties, uh, and Iranian-backed attacks, and then long-term Syrian occupation of the country. The Lebanon War has been called Israel's Vietnam, the first Israeli presence in a foreign Arab capital, drawing Israel into the Middle East in ways it had been reluctant to acknowledge, alongside hundreds of Israeli casualties and the growth of an enormous protest movement. This war transforms global perceptions of Zionism and the Israeli use of force, and I could talk a bit more uh, about that. Uh, the aftermath of the war facilitates the PLO's exile from Beirut to Tunis and further efforts to sidestep Palestinian nationals, and these include a series of initiatives in the 1980s from quality of life initiatives, schemes involving Jordan and the West Bank, all of which fail to address these core PLO demands for self-determination. But as the outbreak of the 1987 Palestinian Intifada, or uprising, made clear, there could be no possibility of ignoring those political claims. Eventually, even the Reagan administration acknowledges as much, which leads to the formal recognition of the PLO in 1988. And the Israelis follow suit in the early 90s, first uh, with the Madrid talks, and then, of course, with the Oslo Accords, which are the subject of the final chapter of the book. Although the Palestinians are now able to participate directly in these negotiations, what I argue is that the imprint of Camp David remained. Like Camp David, Oslo proffered an interim five-year transitional period before discussing final status issues, including borders, sovereignty, and refugees. A Palestinian police force would be brought in to maintain internal security in Gaza and Jericho, but Israel maintained responsibility for external control. And most glaringly, of course, as we know, the agreement allowed for an Israeli clause that would enable ongoing settlement expansion before permanent status <coughs> negotiations. And this blueprint for a sub-sovereign Palestinian entity that had been introduced by Begin 15 years earlier is now the universal template for the Israeli and American concept of what Palestinians could or should achieve in political terms. Moreover, Yasser Arafat and the PLO Executive Committee, the embodiment of the Palestinian national struggle, approved the template with the signing of the Oslo Accords uh, for reasons we can discuss. So, by way of concluding, 
let us return to a map of the Palestinian territories themselves. In this French rendering, the remaining Palestinian enclaves are reimagined as an archipelago, surrounded by a sea of Israeli settlements. Camp David, like Oslo in 1993, actually spurs the expansion of those settlements in the West Bank and Gaza. Now, while Gaza settlements have been removed, although Israel still controls access and border entries and a crippling blockade alongside Egypt, the remaining Palestinian West Bank has taken on an image of scattered islands, not unlike Swiss cheese, with territory bisected by Israeli building and the presence of nearly 600,000 settlers. Palestine, as a sovereign and contiguous political entity, has been prevented. As I suggested in the opening of my talk, there is now widespread opposition in Israel to the notion of a fully sovereign Palestinian state, embodied by figures like Naftali Bennett and Ayelet Shaked, Justice Minister. Such a trend is not limited to the right-wing political parties, as parallels can also be found among centrists and the labor left. Rather than withdraw from the West Bank or abandon the settlements, there is talk of interim measures and slow separation that ensures continued Israeli security control over the territories, consolidating this arrangement. The idea of a Palestinian state, even a demilitarized one, has receded from view. Now this opposition to a sovereign Palestine has deep roots, predating the Oslo Accords. Even Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who famously denounced Oslo supporters as countenancing appeasement, calling them worse than Chamberlain, claimed to embrace a two-state solution to ending the conflict, before making clear that relinquishing control of the West Bank was not an option. He has spoken instead of what he calls a state minus for Palestinians, suggesting some form of limited self-rule with Israeli security control west of the Jordan River. Others, again pointing to maps like this one, have called this emerging reality a clear recipe for Palestinian Bantustans in the occupied territories in reference to South Africa. Crucially, the current U.S. president and his senior Middle East advisors also seem to embrace this outcome, as reflected in the unilateral decision on Jerusalem, the defunding of UNRWA, and recent discussions of the details around the highly guarded deal of the century for resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, my argument in the book and in this lecture is that we need to think critically about the legacy of events in the 1970s and 1980s to understand the roots of these alarming developments. With greater historical distance and the availability of new sources from the US, here in the UK, Israel, and from Palestinians themselves, we can more clearly see that the 1978 Camp David summit was in fact a formative moment of disenfranchisement. At the very moment when their demands for self-determination were under serious consideration for the first time, Palestinians found themselves shut out of an incipient peace process and consigned to the sidelines. In exchange for peace with Egypt and the return of the Sinai, Israel was able to exercise continued control of the West Bank and Gaza Strip. By proffering autonomy as an alternative to full sovereignty, the Begin government cemented indefinite control over the occupied territories without any expiry date or with for without formal annexation, extending Israeli sovereignty beyond the 1967 borders. This has blurred the demarcation of a border, and it helps to prevent Palestinian state formation today. This formative history serves as a reminder that these contemporary debates over the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, as well as US, British, and international involvement in its resolution, are in many ways a 21st century revival of earlier dynamics. 
we ignore these trends at our peril. No matter the political arrangement by which the Palestinian question might conceivably be addressed, it cannot be separated from the underlying principle of self-determination that remains at the very heart of Palestinian demands. Thank you.